When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's February 26, 1993. And in the heart of downtown New York City, a yellow van pulls into a public parking garage beneath the World Trade Center. It's around noon, and thousands of people are at their desks working in the iconic Twin Towers overhead. None of them are aware of the huge 600-kilogram bomb that just arrived beneath their feet. What followed was a thunderous explosion that rocked Lower Manhattan, one that carved a 100-foot crater several stories high and several stories deep. So who was responsible for this attack? And why did a terrorist attack on the World Trade Center in 93 not lead to measures that would stop 9-11 and the subsequent war on terror? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers, and to help answer these questions, I've invited leading terrorism expert and historian Dr. Steve Hewitt onto the Warfare Podcast. Enjoy. Hi, Steve. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast, especially as we reach an important anniversary in the history of terrorism and counterterrorism, the 30th anniversary of the terrorist bombing of the World Trade Center in downtown New York City. Now, our listeners might be thinking, hang on, it's not been 30 years since 9-11 quite yet, and of course, you would be right. But that's because we're talking about the attacks that occurred on February the 26th, 1993, aren't we, Steve? We are. And one of the reasons why I think people don't remember it is because of what happened on 9-11, which rather overshadowed what had occurred eight years earlier. I remember exactly where I was when I heard about it 30 years ago. I was in my first year of doing a PhD and I was in a car with a couple of other PhD students. We were going to a post-grad student conference when the news broke over the radio that there had been this explosion. And and it was on a Friday because that was the day that we were traveling. And so I remember that quite vividly hearing it. It was quite a major news item, at least on that day. The key thing here, of course, is that the terrorists that conducted this attack were trying to do something very similar. They were trying to make the tower collapse. That's right. The idea was to take a van, a rental van, packed with a very large explosive, put it in the parking garage underneath the North Tower, and they hoped the explosion would cause the North Tower to topple over onto the South Tower, potentially killing tens of thousands of people as a result. Well, take us through the planning that went into this. Who was behind it, for starters? Sure. It was a group of seven men. Six of them would eventually be convicted and sent to prison. 
In fact, I believe at least five of them are still alive, serving very lengthy sentences. They were originally sentenced to well over 200 years in prison. Since then, there's been some reduction of the sentences. And some of them, if they live to be about 100, might conceivably one day walk the streets again. So it was a group of men living in New Jersey at the time who were part of the plot. Now, the common connection for many of them was a mosque they went to, which featured the sort of spiritual leader of the plot, someone by the name of Omar Abdel Rahman, often referred to as the Blind Sheikh, who was Egyptian, who had been involved in radical Islamist politics in Egypt, had been tied to terrorist groups in Egypt. Rather strangely, he ended up in the United States. And I say strangely because there's some evidence that he was assisted coming to the United States by the Central Intelligence Agency, which would suggest he might have at one time worked as an informant for the CIA. That's generally, uh, I've done research on informants, that's generally how such people end up being allowed in, especially when they're on watch lists and things such as that. So he was sort of the spiritual leader, but the key figure, the man who essentially was the organizer of the plot, his name is Ramzi Youssef. And he has a very interesting background. In fact, he studied at one time in Swansea, of all places, studied uh, for an electrical engineering degree in Swansea. His uncle, just to show you that this is a, a kind of a familial thing, his uncle is a man by the name of Halid Sheikh Mohammed. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he is currently in Guantanamo Bay, still awaiting his trial in relation to the 9-11 attacks. He's the alleged mastermind of 9-11. I know bin Laden obviously is, is the, the figure we all know of, but the person who originally conceived the idea of the attacks was allegedly Halid Sheikh Mohammed, still yet to come to trial. So Ramzi Youssef is this figure who helps organize the plot. And then the day of the explosion, he's the one that lights the fuse, which had been timed out to take 12 minutes. He lights the fuse, they escape, he gets on a flight and leaves the United States and is at large for two more years and is involved in various terrorism plots before he's caught in Pakistan in 1995 and then extradited to the United States where he is tried, convicted, and is serving a life sentence. And it's quite an interesting contrast as well in terms of how the United States perceived terrorism at the time versus how it would perceive it after 9-11. So Ramzi Youssef, involved in the first World Trade Center attack, treated as a criminal, tried through the regular court system, serving a life sentence. His uncle is treated as an unlawful combatant. The U.S. militarizes the counterterrorism response. He ends up being waterboarded, ends up in Guantanamo Bay, yet to go to trial over 20 years after the actual attacks. So in many ways, this is a foreboding to the war on terror and very much a time where we see a shift in the way in which terrorism starts to be countered because these attacks on the United States are not only getting more severe, but there's a whole new motivation behind them. And this is about making sure that the US suffers and that the terror is felt across the nation. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, terrorism was not new. It was not new in the United States. You can go back to the 19th century to find various acts of terrorism. There had been kind of periodic acts of violence prior to this connected to Middle Eastern politics, but this was the first major attack 
within the United States tied to the Middle East, tied to U.S. foreign policy, tied to a certain extent. Again, this is where the picture gets complicated because it's we always want a kind of single narrative that this violence was caused by this or it was caused by that. And I think, truthfully, you can say in this case, it's a mixture of politics. There's an element of religion as well. The letter that the attackers wrote and sent to various newspapers, including the New York Times, did not mention religion at all. They specifically mentioned U.S. support for Israel and the treatment of Palestinians as the motivation for the attacks. And this is why they wanted to make America suffer. I see. So when we're looking at this, it seems quite nice and neat and clear to place them into one cell almost, one terrorist cell is what I mean, one kind of box here where you can link the motivations behind 9-11 and the key perpetrators to the motivations behind this attack. But what you're saying is that there's a lot of different shifting political allegiances and political motivations behind this. Exactly. And it gets even more complicated because there are various conspiracy theories that emerge in the aftermath of the attack. So, of course, the obvious one that you refer to there is that Al-Qaeda was behind the attacks. And certainly there are connections, although someone like Ramzi Youssef, like his uncle, were more almost freelance terrorists who were working with different groups. And in one of the interviews bin Laden did before 9-11, he categorically denied having played any role in the 1993 World Trade Center attack, and nor has the U.S. ever officially accused him of having been involved. The other conspiracy theory that emerges, interestingly, after the first World Trade Center attack and is, becomes quite relevant after 9-11 is that Iraq was behind the first World Trade Center attacks, that Saddam Hussein was connected. And that why this is significant, of course, is because this is the, the momentum that leads to the invasion of Iraq. So there's a couple of books put out, or the, one of the books in particular accuses Ramzi Yusuf of actually really being an Iraqi intelligence agent. And so this was state terrorism carried out in 1993. And again, this has been widely refuted. There's no evidence of this, but it became very popular among some that were pushing for the invasion of Iraq after the 9-11 attacks. Ah, yes, the old axis of evil. And of course, if we think about this as an absolutely pivotal point in history, it's this year that we're marking 20 years since the start of the Iraq war. So 10 years between this attack happening and then the full-blown start of a second war as part of this broader, amorphous, and yet-to-end war on terror. But Steve, take us down into the events of the day itself. Now, you mentioned that they managed to get hold of a truck and fill it full of explosives. How on earth did anybody at this time manage to get into the United States and then get hold of these these weapons? Sure. So this is the kind of nature of terrorism in this period. And interestingly, so that we have the attack in February of 1993. A few months later, you have a standoff in a place called Waco, Texas, where a number of people are killed. Two years after that, you have the Oklahoma City bombing, a kind of very similar attack that involves a rental vehicle, that involves a kind of homemade explosive. And the precursor to this is the, the 1993 February attack. It involves basically renting a van, which they go and do, and it involves acquiring chemicals over several months and building their own bomb, chemicals connected to fertilizer, other items that are available, readily available. They also use tanks of hydrogen, 
to amplify the explosion. So it's kind of, I think the cost is just a few thousand dollars in terms of the materials and the rental van. In fact, ironically, one of the ways that they are caught afterwards, and this speaks to a certain lack of professionalism when it comes to terrorism, is one of the people in the plot after the explosion called the rental company and said that the van had been stolen and he wanted his $400 damage deposit back. And within a couple of days, they found something called the vehicle identification number in the wreckage, which is unique to each vehicle. So they were able to trace, the FBI was able to trace the van to where it had been rented. And the FBI were waiting for this individual when he turned up to collect his $400 and he was arrested. And that led to the kind of rolling up of some members of the plot. Wow. I mean... It doesn't scream of highly trained professional terrorist organizations here. It sounds more like they're, they're making it up as they go. And surprisingly, they managed to actually detonate this uh, homemade one and a half thousand pound bomb that they put together in a rented garage in New Jersey and actually make the explosion take place. But it doesn't deliver what they wanted it to. There, there isn't this cataclysmic collapse of the tower. I assume they were hoping that they would be able to undermine the the support of the building itself, make the beams bend and twist, and then cause that mayhem you mentioned before in downtown Manhattan. Yeah, and there is some suggestions by structural engineers that had the van been parked closer to a support structure part of the building, there is the potential that, that the building might have been brought down. And again, there were tens of thousands of people working in those buildings on that day. Sadly, six people lost their lives in the actual explosion. These were people that were happened for whatever reason. Several of them were employees who were based in the parking garage because it's the parking garage underneath the building where the, the van is parked. So six people lost their lives. Over a thousand were injured. Many of them suffered smoke inhalation because one of the things that happened is after the explosion, the smoke just rushed up through the building, including the stairwells. And obviously it was quite choking smoke. And so, yeah, people struggled, including firefighters, to breathe as a result of the explosion. But mercifully, the loss of life was relatively low, obviously, compared to what would happen eight years later. And, you know, it's, it's easy to downplay this attack and, and say, you know, oh, only a few people died. It could have been much, much worse. But the reality is, is that this is one of the first transnational acts of terrorism designed to be a massive international headline grabbing attack that leaves the underground section of the World Trade Center completely and utterly destroyed, rocks this building. I, I, I dread to think what it must have been like inside when this bomb exploded. Do we have any testimony from those who are inside? Well, certainly there are photos, many photos. It's a massive hole. I think it's something like 200 feet deep, 100 feet wide, through several stories of the parking garage. It's really, it is sort of amazing that more people weren't killed given the extent of the damage. It's the, I think the estimate is that the bomb was anywhere from 1,200 pounds to 1,500 pounds. So it was quite a large explosive. And obviously within the confines of the parking garage, which again, that sort of amplified the explosion as well. So it is a rather devastating, shocking attack for that period. I mean, in terms of it being unprecedented in the modern period compared to the nature of terrorism that had come before, at least in the previous decades in the United States.
I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and this month on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm dusting down my magnifying glass to investigate some of history's most notorious murders and brutal crimes. Was it a quarrel, or was the brilliant playwright Christopher Marlowe actually murdered in that Deptford Inn? Was Amy Dudley, wife of Elizabeth I's favourite Robert, pushed down a flight of stairs to her death? Were the Guise, that great French family, actually bloodthirsty murderers who secured their power through ruthlessness and violence? And what's the truth about the Hungarian noblewoman who allegedly killed hundreds of young women? Join me, but not on an empty stomach, for not just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I guess it's easy to look back now and think, how were they not stopped at the border? And then, perhaps most remarkably, how were so many of these terrorists able to board planes and then leave the United States without being caught? And then it takes a number of years for them all to be rounded up. And and as you mentioned, a number of them are still in prison today. But there just wasn't the level of counter-terrorism scanning, the kind of security nets, the the gigantic mobilization of the policing and intelligence apparatus that came through after 9-11. It just wasn't in place yet, was it? No, it wasn't. It just wasn't that big a priority at the time, counterterrorism. I I teach a history of terrorism at the University of Birmingham. And one of the things we talk about in in relation to the 60s, 70s and 80s and 90s is about, you know, why wasn't there more of a response by the American state or other states towards terrorism? And, And one of the answers to that is because the Cold War overshadowed the threat of terrorism. 
the threat of nuclear annihilation was a much obviously existential threat to the entire world than was terrorism. So there just wasn't, terrorism just wasn't that big a priority at the time. And even after this event, I think it was seen more as sort of a, a one-off. And even after the Oklahoma City bombing in, in 1995, the US doesn't really make a concerted effort to address the issue of terrorism. Again, it's after 9-11 where, you know, this month is also the 20th anniversary of the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, which was brought in in the aftermath of the uh, 9-11 attacks. I see. Well, you've mentioned that Mohammed Salama had been tracked down due to the fact he tried to get his $400 deposit back and then was met by an FBI SWAT team. But what about the others? How were they tracked down in the months and years that followed? The uh, so-called blind shake never left. He was still in the area. And so there was a second plot that some were involved with that he was connected to that would have been several terrorist attacks. So they were plotting, some of them were plotting additional attacks and he got caught up in that and was eventually convicted in relation to that. Are these the attacks, Steve, that were, they involved chemicals like cyanide that were found in their, their apartment. So we're going to plan a, a second attack. Yeah, that's right. They, I think they, when the police raid it, they literally raided their bomb making factory where they were in the process of building some explosives. So the kind of spiritual head is, he, he's rounded up in connection to that. Ramzi Youssef, he gets on a plane literally the day of the bombing, jets off, ends up traveling around. He's in the Philippines. He's involved in a plot there with his uncle where they, they're they plotting. And then again, this has echoes of 9-11. They wanted to bring down 11 transatlantic flights in one go over the Pacific. And they were had a bomb making laboratory in Manila, which there was a fire and that ended up ending that plot. So he ends up then in Pakistan. He takes on a kind of assistant, a young South African man, and brings him into kind of a, a terrorist planning, except the South African um, young man is a bit disillusioned with the whole idea of the, the terrorism plot and literally is on a flight and reads in Newsweek magazine, I believe it is, that the U.S. is after Ramzi Youssef and that the U.S. is offering a big cash reward for the arrest of Ramzi Youssef. And he goes, I think, to the US embassy and basically turns Youssef in and there's a police raid, Youssef's arrested, extradited to the United States. Famously, there's a story that the FBI, they were flying Youssef, I think, and it was to the courtroom by helicopter and an FBI agent sort of pulled, they had a use of blindfolded, but he pulled down his blindfold and pointed to say, look, there's the World Trade Center, you know, you failed. And Yusuf made some kind of cryptic comment about give us time or something along those lines that in hindsight obviously becomes quite chilling. So Yusuf is the, is the kind of key figure. He's the head of the plot. One of the other people in the plot, I think, is arrested in Egypt, extradited to the United States, convicted. It's interesting, there's still one person at large. So of the seven, six ended up being tried, convicted. A seventh who the police initially had in custody and he showed them where the bomb making occurred for, for strange, I'm not, reasons I'm not sure of. He was released from custody and flew off and ended up in Iraq, disappeared after the invasion of Iraq in 2003. I think it's still on the FBI's most wanted list. And so there's one of the seven involved in the plot 
who's still at large, but the other six all convicted, all receiving very long sentences in prison. The blind sheikh died in 2017. He, he was elderly and in poor health, but the others are still in prison, some of them in the famous Supermax prison in Colorado, where they have like a terrorist wing. Is I think that's where Ramzi Yusuf is. Try and explain something for me, Steve, because I'm, I'm a little bit confused. Because when I'm going through the FBI files on this, they say that one of the shock waves that came from this attack was a, a real injection of funding into the FBI. They established this task force with 700 FBI agents worldwide who would hunt down the perpetrators and the networks and stop this from happening again. So how is it that these hundreds of FBI agents then miss the fact that 9-11 was going to take place less than 10 years later? Well, <laughs> that is a really interesting question. And again, I think the answer is complicated. And I think it's to do with a number of factors. But first of all, you have in, in 1995, I mentioned already, you have the Oklahoma City bombing, the worst act of terrorism in the United States before 9-11. And let's talk about that for a second, because the Oklahoma City bombing is Timothy McVeigh. And this is a right wing American movement. That's correct, isn't it? That's right. McVeigh is a U.S. military veteran. He's involved in far-right extremism, as we would say today. He is angry over the storming of this compound in Waco. Again, I mentioned Waco earlier, but it involved this kind of cult who the police had tried to raid in 1993. There was a gunfight. Several U.S. law enforcement personnel were killed. And then there was a big standoff at Waco that ended with the then U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno ordering the FBI and police to move in. Leaders of the cult had filled their building with petrol, set it on fire, although there were, again, conspiracy theories that the FBI used devices to spark fires. But there was widespread fury on the American the far right in the United States over this. So that leads literally to the day, two years later, is the Oklahoma City bombing, a bomb set off outside a U.S. government building in Oklahoma City, 168 people, including a number of children in the daycare, killed. Now, in the aftermath of that, the Clinton administration pushed to try to take a tougher line on terrorism, using the police more aggressively. But there was a bit of a backlash then not only on the part of the right, but even on the part of the left about, you know, government overreach, big brother, all of those sorts of things. So domestically, that kind of curtailed to a certain extent any greater emphasis on counterterrorism. But the other factor around 9-11 is less to do with the FBI and more to do with CIA, CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, the U.S. Foreign Intelligence Agency, the equivalent of MI6 in the U.K., there's a historic rivalry between CIA, FBI that goes back literally to the birth of the CIA in the 1940s. And there was a, a failure to share information. So when it came to 9-11, uh, several of those who would be hijackers, the CIA knew they were already in the United States. They waited until mid-August of 2001 to let the FBI and others know for reasons that have to do with rivalry, about not wanting to share information, about protecting sources, all these sorts of complications. And so, yeah, so the information, in a sense, was all out there, though obviously it's always easy after an attack to then pinpoint, you know, well, why didn't they stop it? But hindsight, as they say, is twenty twenty. So there was that kind of complication, complicated institutional rivalries and boundaries where there wasn't a sharing of information. So I think so there's, there's a multitude of factors about 9-11. 
some of which connect obviously back to 1993, some of which are unique in a sense. As some uh, former FBI agents once put it to me, it's also a, a kind of failure of imagination in many ways, because whoever would have thought, even in the most outlandish crime novels, that this would have taken place, that these planes would be hijacked and then crashed into the World Trade Centers, into both towers in downtown New York. So it is easy to look back and connect all of these dots with hindsight, as you say, but it is incredibly difficult at the time to piece all of this together, let alone beforehand. But what are the legacies of this attack, Steve? I mean, it couldn't happen again today, could it? It certainly could happen again today. Ah. I think there's no question that a similar attack... I think that one of the legacies, lesson is probably not the right word, again, I think when we live in a democratic society, we live in a free society we need to recognize there is no such thing as 100% security. And there are always going to be so-called soft targets. The World Trade Center may not be an example of a soft target, but there are obviously still many other places where, you know, parking a van, where their vans aren't searched, where there's no sort of security. Obviously, you now have certain high-profile targets that have a lot more security. And, you know, you can see that in the UK around the IRA and its use of car bombs over decades and things such as that. But there still are soft targets. There still are areas where civilians congregate, where car bomb or any similar vehicle could bring about casualties. So certainly it's more difficult. There's more of a watch now on accumulating chemicals that could be used, that sort of thing. There's databases, there's even attempts, I think, to use AI to kind of ferret out plots in the making based on what people shop for on websites and things such as that. But there's no 100% guarantee, and nor do I think there ever will be. And I think the only place you would have 100% guarantee is obviously if you lived in an authoritarian state, which I assume people do not want to do. Which I suppose is what we're trying to avoid with all of this. But I guess the point I was trying to get to there is that it's now harder to get hold of these chemicals that can be mixed together to make these sort of bombs on this kind of scale. You can't get hold of the the fertilizers, for example. And if anything, would you say, being an expert on terrorism, would you say that more of the recent attacks we've seen where you've seen terrorists using knives or using trucks, very basic measures, of course, effective and truly terrifying. But the fact they've had to resort to to such a a, a basic measure of attack, is that not a a symptom of the fact that the counterterrorism measures are working? I would argue it definitely is. And I think this point isn't brought out enough in media coverage that I think it is a sign of counterterrorism working. Not only that, but the prevalence of what's referred to as lone actor terrorists sometimes called lone wolf terrorists, that is a sign as well of counterterrorism working in that it's very difficult to have a large organized plot because the more people that are involved, the more the chances that the authorities will infiltrate or intercept communications going between plotters. So now you have terrorism. Now I'm talking terrorism in, say, the United States and the United Kingdom, not necessarily in other parts of the world. Involving, as you mentioned, uh, you know, someone using a kitchen knife, someone running people down with the vehicle, very crude, still leads to casualties. But the reason why, in a sense, you've got, you have that is because you can't, it's very almost impossible to have a, a big organized plot along the lines of 9 11. And 
you do have greater restrictions, greater monitoring of the purchase of certain chemicals that could be used to to manufacture explosives. And with each attack, you know, if a different type of bomb is used, the authorities are very quick to look at what was used and to see how those materials were obtained and to restrict or monitor their sales. So I think all of these, it's a bit of, I like to compare it to a, a chess match in the, the terrorists make a move, the counter-terrorists make a counter move, and it's just kind of back and forth. But the state through counterterrorism, they have much more in the way of resources than terrorists ever do. So in a sense, it is an, an equal playing field. And that's why you get terrorists trying to do things that catch people off guard, because the shock factor is one of the only cards that they can play because they're just, you know, they're up against the resources of the United Kingdom, the United States, and they have nothing comparable in response. Well, it has become the defining phenomena of our times. Terrorism and the war on terrorism, it's something that persists even though world events uh, appear to take us in, in different directions at the moment and we'd be foolhardy to take our eyes off the terrorist groups that are around the world. And I know that our listeners are going to be fascinated by this topic and want to learn more. So Steve, where can our listeners read more about this? And I believe they can follow you on Twitter as well with your own tweets about the history of terrorism. That's right. I have a Twitter account called Terrorizing History. I think it's the actual Twitter is uh, Terrorizing His One. And I regularly tweet around significant anniversaries related to terrorism and to counterterrorism. And, and, you know, whenever possible, mention new scholarship. I also have done a few interviews with authors about academic books. Terrorism and Political Violence is a journal that's out there. Again, you might need an academic library to get access, but one of my personal pet peeves is the lack of historical scholarship on terrorism. It tends to be an academic field dominated by social scientists, mainly political scientists, because it's always seen as a contemporary issue, even though in the modern age, it goes back to the 19th century and anarchists. So, But there have been some uh, recent decent histories of terrorism, there's a book by Randall Law that's easily accessible. Martin Miller has a history of terrorism out as well. I'm sure there's a few others I've forgotten. So there has been a growth in historical scholarship, say, over the last 10, 15 years. But historians certainly are not as prevalent writing about terrorism as some other academic disciplines. Well, if you're a historian out there and you want to work on a, a new area, it sounds like there's lots still to be written about the history of terrorism and failing that. Of course, you can go and study a degree with Steve over at Birmingham. Steve, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.